and welcome to Reliving Mind. My name is Wolf Fogelman. My guest this week is Pat Mastelletto. Now, Pat is one of the most premier rock drummers out there, having worked with, of course, Mr. Mister, and his work with King Crimson, and of course, Stickmen. Great session drummer as well. Worked with XTC, the Pointer Sisters, the Rembrandts, name a few. We talk about how he got involved with the drums. We deal heavily with uh, Mr. Mister during this interview, how they got together. We talk about the hits, kind of like the religious overtones with some of their songs. And their last album, Pull, that came out, I think about, what, 13 years ago? Finally came out because they were working on that over 20 years ago, 25 years ago. So they discuss the politics behind the lay of that album and how some real-life tragedy played into that uh, delay. Really enjoying the conversation with Pat, and I hope you do as well. So, Pat, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate this. You're welcome. Yeah, I know we've been getting in touch with each other even before the pandemic. So what's like the two, last two plus years been like for you? <laughs> wow, was it that long ago you asked me? Yeah, quite some time. Yeah. Pandemic. Uh, well, I stay busy. Um, I, I've done so many things since then. Um, when we started the pandemic, uh, we were with Stickman. We were just uh, starting to do some gigs in China and Japan. So uh, we were in the Chinese gigs canceled. And then uh, we were in Japan the very end of February. And we were the last international act to play in Japan. We had arrived on Thursday, uh, Tony Levin, Marcus Reuter, and uh, Gary Husband was our special guest for that gig. And uh, we did one show there because they shut Japan down the next day. So uh, Tony and I flew home and Marcus today with Gary Husband and they made a recording, which is their kind of a piano and guitar to it. And uh, I came home and uh, got depressed. Uh, I went to home Depot got a lot of plants and things to keep us busy. I could see that I got a I got a rolling machine, a concept one, so I yeah. could exercise in the house, and uh, and stocked up on groceries and and got my kids to come home. Okay. Uh, my daughter, I forget they were in the middle of moving, so they set up a camper in our in our uh, trailer in our yard. And uh, as COVID progressed, uh, my wife and I had the idea we bought a camper. Okay. So we didn't, we wanted to travel and see family, take advantage of the time. We took a camper. The two of us drove, I drove about a month long trip. Uh, we went out to California and, and saw family up into Oregon and Portland and, and, uh, and came back. And uh, then I kind of got back into recording that I was recording something with my wife that we'd started the year before. She had an idea to make a softer version of some of the King Crimson songs. Okay. So we've made the Mantic's Guide to King Crimson. Uh, we, we did a lot of that before COVID. And the same with the ORC record. I did the ORK record, yeah. a lot of it during COVID. But we started before that. Um, and we only finished that record last year. Um, I, I, I can't think, but there are many, many other projects, a lot of gardening. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, either people got exercise equipment or a puppy during the pandemic it seems like you know someone's got at least one or the other <laughs> during during 
the last few years. We already had dogs, but we took the kids in and then we had their dogs. And then, right. and then once my camper came, we parked the camper on another part of, I'm lucky I live out in the country. I've got a couple acres. So we planted, put the camper somewhere else and had the other kids move into the camper. So we okay. had a lot of family on for the year. And uh, yeah, a lot of gardening and cheap treat trimming and stuff like yeah, that exactly yeah now, big, you big project yeah you mentioned the, the the stick men and i really you know love that project you guys like looking to perform here in the states at all we perform a lot yeah we've done two east coast tours this year we did about i don't know close to 100 gigs this year so it was okay. uh, last april i think we were on the east coast and then we had a a festival gig in new jersey in october so we did about six more shows on the east okay. coast right around that we went to mexico city then we went home for a couple of weeks and then we went to south america so that's the last shows i did were about two weeks ago right uh, we went to chile uh, uh bolivia and argentina okay. and we have another tour that'll start in february so in about months uh, that'll start up in Vancouver and we'll go down the West Coast, come around through New Mexico and Colorado, and we'll end here in Texas where I live. Okay. And we'll probably pick a couple of days recording uh, here at my place when we finish. Right. All right. How did that project come about? Stickman? Um, well, it was back around 2006, and um, 2011 sent an email. He said he's going to make a solo record. And he wanted to feature this Chapman stick. And he asked me if I would just help him make some drum loops and things very up-tempo with this in mind, which I did. Uh, that was right around Christmas. And coincidentally, Marcus was at my house then. We were working on one of our tuner records. And so, so we finished that record. Tony put that record out called Stick Man. And then he said he wanted to tour. And he said he knew another stick player uh, where he lives. He lives in Kingston, New York. So that was Michael Bernier. So we got Michael and uh, I had an offer to do a, a drum festival in Poland. So I said, well, can I bring Tony and, and these guys were going to start a new band, but we haven't rehearsed yet. So the Polish guy, a promoter for the drum festival, my friend Wojtek, he gave us the radio station. Okay. So we rehearsed at a radio station for two or three days and we did our first shows there. And then we had a gig in uh, New York, kind of a big deal gig. Uh, it was to kind of be our debut gig, but it was... Uh, e. Jobson, the violin player that was with Roxy Music and Zappa oh, yeah. and Crimson. He had retired ages ago and done film work and he decided to get back into show business. So he had a big uh, gig at Town Hall in New York and we okay. were the support group for that. And that was to premiere now that I'm thinking that was his new band, which was called maybe y, Y2Z or something with Marco Minimum and uh, Trey Gunn and uh, Alex, I think was playing guitar. Um, and that was a fun gig because we did a couple of Crimson. We did Lark's Tongue and Africa Part Two together. Uh, I played uh, Marco Minimum's drums and Marco played guitar. He's, he's very good at everything. So right. uh, that was fun. And then we carried on touring. And after about a year or so of touring, like 2008, nine, uh, Mike realized it was too much for him traveling and all that. So uh, we were going to stop, but I suggested to Tony, my friend Marcus, I said, he's also a touch player. He doesn't play the Chapman stick, but he plays in the same style and he could be a very good uh, uh, replacement. And we already had gigs booked in South America uh, the following February. So this was just before I got married, which was 
10 October. The guys, uh, Marcus and Tony came here. I said, it'd be good if you guys met. And, and so we don't just show up in South America and we right, guys yeah. hate each other. Mm-hmm. So uh, they came to my place and we made a EP that we called Absalom. And uh, the, one of the first things we composed here at my place was a piece Tony brought in. Really, it's a uh, crack in the sky, which we continue to play live. That's uh, one of our classics. Yeah, it's a great and, song. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so then we carried on with Marcus and things have just gone uphill since then. So, uh, uh, yeah, we've done, a little, I don't know, maybe a couple, 500 gigs with Marcus. We, we play a lot. Yeah. Uh, right. Like you have so many projects, like, you know, going like, how often do you have to turn like you know requests down uh well there's a little juggling involved for sure um but a lot of these things that you call projects are one-offs people okay. i'll record and i can do it here at my house and i can right. flex the t- uh, timing uh stickman is really a band um orc is actually a band when the orc guys it was first uh, colin and left that they, they emailed me around uh, 2013 or 14, just as Crimson was starting. Robert had already called that we're going to start Crimson. So they wanted to know if I'd play on some tracks for this new, new thing they were doing. And I said, and tour. They wanted to know if I'd take the next level, we could do a record and tour. And uh, I said, I can't. I got King Crimson starting again, so I'll be unavailable. I didn't know at that point whether it would be a year or how long. Right. Uh, but uh, Colin and Left said, we'll wait, we'll wait for you. So after 2014, when Crimson stopped there, we weren't sure if, at that point if we're going to carry on. Uh, I thought, well, shit, they waited a year for me. I better come through. Right. So uh, I did the first record, did the tour, love the guys. We hang, we, we get along great. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure. Even though it's a van tour, it's like high school again. You know? yeah. uh, it's fun. It's fun. So, right. And then King Crimson did uh, decide to tour some more, uh, as you know, in, in 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, we kept on going. So, or we took the cracks, the same okay. as Stickman, we, we find the gaps. Right. Um, but there are occasionally things I have to turn down and um, I, I'm a little leery to book things too far in advance for one-offs. You know, we've yeah. got some festival shows that are isolated shows, they're offers for Orc, it's difficult to commit to one day a year away. I wait until it, 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 it maybe links together with, yeah. with something else. Right. Um, like going back, like I guess a couple of years now, um, why the drums? Why the drums? Well, you're going back a lot of years. Yeah, a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. One or two, maybe. <laughs> well, um, I, I was definitely a. Um, you know, a child of, of, of the 60s. I was born in 55. So uh, by the time I was a little boy, uh, the British invasion hit. So it's, it's all about the Beatles and yeah. Dave Clark Five and all that. But I actually, uh, my mother wanted me to play piano. So I'd already tried to take a piano lesson and was frustrated. And I'd seen, you know, all the British bands and, and a guitar. I should move to guitar. So I got her to get me a little guitar and I practiced that. And uh, it was frustrating. Uh, uh, my fingers hurt and mm-hmm. you know I was just a yeah. wuss I was about <laughs> eight or nine years old and um, I had decided to my, my mother was the one that promoted the arts in my family uh, so she 
for me to go to a summer arts class, like summer school, I guess, really right. just get the kids out of the house. But this was a music program, and uh, and I wanted to play f- a French horn. I wanted to play French horn. Uh, and to be honest, it was because I'd seen an episode of uh, – the Man from Uncle, okay, or yeah. Ilya Kuryakin. You remember Ilya Kuryakin was his uh, David McCallum, I think was his name. Um, he plays. Uh, he has to go behind the Iron Curtain and be in an orchestra, and he's a French horn player. And he's but he's got his arm in the cast, yeah. so he doesn't actually have to play. So that episode was just on, and I thought, well, French horn that that sounds really interesting, you know. So um, I signed up to play French horn, and the first day the teacher came in. He looked around the class and he said, I need drummers. Huh. I guess he And he looked at me as about 10 years old and he said, uh-huh. you've got big hands. You go to the drums. Uh-huh. So he put the sticks in my hand. Yeah, okay. And uh, that class was pretty much just rump, 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 that kind of stuff. Um, but it sort of put the put the bug in my head that, oh, this is a little easier than guitar. I don't have to worry about the melody and the pitch and the chords, and, and I can just jump in. And um, and so I did. And we immediately started a band, a grade school band. This would have been seventh, sixth grade even, sixth grade. I went to Catholic school. And we had to perform for the nuns for our music. We had to sing solo for the nuns. And uh, I hated that. Every year I hated that. And... Uh, so with my buddies, I say, hey, what if we, we fucking learn a tune and we play the nuns a song, then they'll let us off the hook. And that's what we did. I think we played The Sound of Silence. That was our first s- song. Right. Uh, we, I think I had a tambourine, maybe a snare drum. Uh, but uh, our repertoire included uh, uh, Rain by the Beatles, but I didn't have any tom-toms. Yeah. I don't know how we played. Right. You know. uh, now the Doors were some of our uh, "Take It Easy, Baby" from the first Doors record was was our, was our you know, go-to song. We played the graduation parties, eighth grade, uh, and uh, and by the time I was in high school, I had I had kind of moved back into playing sports. I was doing a lot of football, and um, but to be totally honest, how this worked, I guess drugs entered my life, <laughs> and um, I realized. It, I didn't enjoy the sports as much and I enjoyed playing in bands right. and it was a way to kind of just cut out of school. And I was lucky because um, I had this little drum set by then. I think maybe three or four drums and uh, some of the older kids at high school, I thought they were going to beat me up. They come walking across the campus towards me and then they said, Pat, you got drums. And said, yeah. Yeah. I said, well, our drummer broke his leg. We need a drummer. Yeah. So now as a freshman, I'm playing with the seniors. Okay. And then somehow there was these college groups. They had a folk band. It was two folk singers, uh, Joe and Cliff. And I don't know how we connected because they would have been 21 and I would have been about 15. I, could, I didn't even drive at that point. But, right. but we hooked up and I started to play. That band evolved. We won the local battle of the bands. We had original material as well as cover tunes. By the time I was 16, 17, that band was my life. We played five nights a week, bars, five hours a night. In fact, I commuted up to uh, Lake Tahoe and Reno. I was living more in California. The whole band was up around Chico in Orville, California. So it was about an hour or two drive uh, to commute to do uh, basically five night a week gigs in Tahoe and Reno. Uh, And some of those gigs were nine at night until six in the morning. Wow. at the ski resort 
Yeah, that, yeah. you know, so we didn't we have to play all the songs twice or three oh. times to get through right. the night. And for me, I, what I remember was we played tequila, da, 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 yeah. da, and and there were free shots or half price shots. I wasn't even old enough to drink, but right. I did. So I had right. tequila. I, I, I picked up tequila at about age sixteen. I, <laughs> I got off. I made the diversion. There's there's booze people and drug people. And I'm with the drug people, right? Weed, but I don't want to do all that drinking stuff until I was much older. I started to learn to drink with the Rembrandts. Okay. There's a band that can drink surprisingly. So I was probably 30 years old before yeah. those guys put the challenge in front of me to do shots with them and stuff like that. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, you'd never know. They were the hardest drinking band I've ever been with. Wow. Yeah, you, you, you wouldn't think that, I guess, right? You wouldn't like, but that's, that's, that's kind of cool. <laughs> now, like when you were like in this band, did you realize then it's like, okay, this was just a stepping stone band to something bigger? No, no, no. That I, There was no stepping stone. Uh, I This was all I knew. It was my buddies and my band, yeah. you know? It's like a, like your guys. Uh, right. uh, that band moved to San Francisco. We moved to the eBay. Uh, just below Oakland is uh, Newark and Hayward. We were down there. We had a, a hippie house just near the Dumbarton Bridge. Uh, about... 10 or 12 of us you know all their girlfriends and and that band was 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 working a lot but just at that that level you know uh club gigs um bar gigs and uh and uh i guess two or three things coincided uh, i'd already been a huge king crimson fan and i had seen king crimson at the cow palace uh while i was in that band i, I drove by myself and saw them as they were the support group for 10 years after and um, they did a very short set. And um, I noticed a day or two later in Rolling Stone that King Crimson was playing again in Los Angeles in about a week or two. And coincidentally, we were playing a gig that night. And we in that band, we had a Hammond B3 and a Leslie cabinet and all of the spinet piano, the, the whole band would carry. And I dropped the thing on my foot, on my right foot. So my, my right toe was, was all swollen. It was hard to play. Boyfriends and girlfriends in the house arguing, a lot of shit going on. I said, yeah. you know, I, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave. I'm going to take my chance and move to L.A. Okay. My parents had moved to L.A. So I had a backup plan because my folks uh, in the two or three years that I was off skirting around with these rock club gigs, uh, they had established, uh, they had moved down. My dad was working on the freeways down there, the 118 and the 210 freeway. So I moved to L.A. And uh, if I had a dream at that point, besides just being in a band, um, it was to be a session player. Okay. And that was largely because of uh, uh, Jim Keltner uh, and uh, Jim Gordon and uh, James Katzen. These were names I would see on different records right. and I'm thinking how cool this guy he's playing with with George Harrison and he's playing with Emmy Lou Harris and then he wow how do you how do you do that oh that's a session guy like Russ Kunkel he's jumping between the Jackson Brown and the Linda Ronstadt gigs and, and that's what I want to do so uh, I didn't know how to do that I wanted right. to do that yeah so was that my mother uh, was playing tennis. Uh, she's a very good tennis player. They my both ranked uh, tennis players in the, whatever that would have been in the 70s. Um, and he was a session player. So she, his name is Kenny Watson. He was a Vibes player. Vibes and Maroon, the first call. 
And she said, uh, would you help my kid out here? And, and, he, and he took me to a session. He took me to a major session. It was at MGM or uh, I'm not sure really, 20th Century Fox. Um, I don't think it was The Godfather. I think it was the following movie that James Caan made. It was called The Gambler. Okay. But this was a big soundstage with an orchestra. And there were five mm. percussionists. Huh. Kenny was playing the vibes. Joe Picaro was playing incidental percussion. Emil Richards was playing the ethnic percussion. Actually, Joe was probably on timpani. Uh, uh, Larry Bunker was the trap kit player. So anyway, I saw, well, this is really, this is what I want to do. This is the greatest thing in the world. And uh, Kenny quickly points, he said, but Pat, you don't read. You, you don't read at all. You, yeah. know, you got to learn how to read music to do these gigs. Um, and I said, well, teach me. And he said, well, let me, let me ask Joe, Joe Picaro, Jeff's father, right. if he'll take you as a student. He said, once you get your, your fundamentals of reading together, then we'll move it over to the mallet instruments. Uh, but we never got that far. Okay. I took three lessons with Joe, and uh, and uh, and that's as much as I could hack it. You know, uh, I didn't. You know, Joe Joe gave me a stick. I, I held the stick like this that time. Uh, not very good. And, and so the things I learned from Joe, I had to audition for Joe, and I played for Joe about ten minutes, and or not even ten minutes, two minutes, a minute. And Joe said, "Stop. You've got no time. You've got no technique. You've got no chops, and you're young." You know, about 18, 17, 18, he says, uh, find something else. This isn't really free. And I started to do engineering classes. I went okay. to engineering school, audio engineer in L.A. Uh, and other things like that uh, to stay alive. I was selling carpet on the phone. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, Joe was great. Joe Picaro, those, those, that first lesson where he laid it down, man, I beg him. I say, you know, I, I'm already working. I'm, I'm supporting myself as a, as a teenager. Yeah. Make it a couple of bucks a week playing bars, and I think I can do this. Just, just help me get on the path. So he told me to hold the stick. Uh, he showed me where the fulcrum was. So okay. I hold the stick here, go down the valley, wrap your fingers around, and then he pulled out a metronome. I had never seen a metronome. This was a Franz, a little black box with a right. light on top. And he set it down to sixty BPM. And he told me when this hand goes down, that one goes up. That was our lesson at 60 BPM. Hmm. And I went home for a week or a month and practiced and came back. And when I, I played for Joe, there's a flam. There's a flam. Hmm. You know, I'm not quite in sync with it. With the right. you just go home. You haven't learned the last lesson. So those were my other two lessons with Joe or go home. You haven't hmm. learned the first lesson. Um, so there you go. But I kept on playing and, um, and, 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 and it, and it evolved, you know, I, I was, I was lucky. Um, so there was no uh, game plan when I was a young guy. Right. Well, so what was like your very first like session gig then? My first session gig? Uh, well, that was odd. That was, I had only been in LA, I don't know, weeks, uh, maybe a month. And you would go in those days, there was a musician's contact service. There was a musician's union, but there was also at a guitar center or any music store, it would usually be a, a wanted thing. You know how you tear off the little right, phone yeah. numbers at the bottom for those days? Yeah. A bunch of little pieces of, with the phone number. So I called for somebody looking for a drummer, and it was um, Juice Newton, is who oh, it turned wow. out to be. Okay. Successful later. They're called Juice Newton and the Silver Spur. 
Juice and Otha and one more guy, the baker, I think his Tom. We rehearsed uh, that afternoon in a uh, steakhouse somewhere there in the valley. And then we played at the Troubadour, uh, which was a hoot night. Troubadour is kind of a big deal then. Um, uh, Doug Weston's Troubadour. So we were really only supposed to, I think, play one or two songs with some kind of a... Um, I think it was a Jesus song, uh, Stand By Me, Jesus, yeah. like a religious uh, thing. They'd gotten some kind of a BMI award to be on this little uh, night show. And, uh, and, and, and I made a horrible mistake that night, which I still remember to this day, which was maybe a, the drums are supposed to come in at the second chorus, but at the first chorus, I very loudly, would you push it right. And the whole the two, three, Otho and Juice, whatever, they turn around and look like, Shh. hard to tiptoe out of that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the odd thing was, uh, they called the next day and they said, we, we want to take you in the studio. And I'm going, oh, this is, this is rocking. I've been in LA a month and it's, I got a session. Going, ABC Dunhill, like, wow, that's Three Dog Night. That's, that's Steppenwolf. That's right. Steely Dan. This is that studio. Uh, which I've never been to since, actually, the ABC Dunhill <laughs> studio, never again. But and it was uh, Bones Howe was the producer. who had done the association and maybe Mamas and Papas. And we cut all the songs they had, maybe 10 songs that day. And I thought I cut the record, but I never saw the record and never worked with those people again, really. Uh, and then years later, I see the record come out. They moved over to RCA Records, and I see the same song titles, but yeah. I see it's Hal Blaine, it's Jeff Bocaro. It's like oh. I'm not playing. I did the demos. Okay, I did the demo. So, so you know that was uh, an opening, uh, eye opening experience, and uh, I did a lot of demos. I did a lot of demos because those days there wasn't a drum machine. I got to LA around 1974, 74 or five ish, and uh, uh, so you could, I, I work, uh, I forget what we used to get 20, 20 bucks a song, 50 bucks a song mm -hmm. to cut demos. So I'd, uh, be in somebody's house cutting eight track, you know, demos. Yeah. And then maybe in the afternoon, we go over to, uh, uh, universal universal had a staff of writers and it's, it was underneath where universal, uh, they call city walk universal North Hollywood, uh, okay. right at, studio city um underneath that big uh, uh theme park there are studios and um that was uh, brock walsh andrew gold uh the guy who did alanis morissette's record uh the big big record uh i can't think of his name now i think he's a southern guy anyway there were just a lot of songwriters so we pop in there and, and cut uh uh two or three, four songs, like in maybe two hours, you know, because right. the songwriters had to turn the building over. I'm trying to think, I can't believe I can't think of his name, but he's the co-producer of uh, Alanis's big record. Like Glenn uh, Ballard? Yeah, Glenn. Yeah. Glenn. Okay. Glenn would have been one of the songwriters. Okay. So, you know, we, we do this, it was usually uh, Davey Farragher, if you know Davey, plays with uh, Ellis Costello, bass player. Uh, Dennis Herring was usually on guitar. He went on to produce, uh, I forget what, but he had some big hits. He's produced Elvis Costello's records as well as other things I can't remember. And the keyboard player quite often was Paul Fox. Okay. And Paul went on to produce and do the XTC record. So that's how Paul and I, we were friends okay. from before. 
you know, as, as session guys, and, yeah. you know, cut a couple of tracks here, see a week or a month later, and then they say, Hey, huh. and we became buddies and, um, so what was yeah what was the first time like one of your sessions made it onto an album we were able to see your name on the album sleeve um well records i don't really remember there was a um there was a, a guy in the valley he had a studio in his house it was called alpha and his name is gary he was a canadian guy he'd come down with gordon lightfoot i think huh. was his main artist but he built a studio in his house and I used to go over there and cut tracks for him and uh, they were country records. Uh, I, I don't really remember except for one of the guys, maybe bass player someplace was traveling or whatever. I get a phone call from him. He said, Hey, we're on the radio. I go, what, what do you mean? He's holding up the phone. He yeah. says, that's us. I recognize this. I'm somewhere, you know, he said, I don't know where he is a Walmart or a truck stop right. or something. And he recognizes, uh, I don't remember who the artist was. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. I kind of remember the song. It was like a truck driving country song. What's really interesting about this is that Gary called me days or weeks one time later. He says, hey, I've got an artist coming in who plays everything, and I need to get a drum kit. I need to rent a drum kit. I love the way your drums sound. Can I rent your drums for this artist? And in those days, I was playing mostly, well, I had a couple different kits, but I had this Fibes kit with no bottom heads yeah. that were gaffer tape. They were like James kit, just thud, thud, thud. Yeah. Those are the drums that, that I'd usually used when I worked at Gary's. And those are the drums he thought he was renting. But I had other gigs, so I needed to keep working. So coincidentally, there was a drummer named Bo Siegel, and he was out there playing with Warren Zevon. He's from Connecticut, actually, now okay. that I think of Bo Siegel. Yeah, and he was very Steve Gadley guy. So, uh, and he he was going through a divorce, and there were some other issues going on. So he needed cash. So he sold his old Rogers drum kit. Uh, Rogers was a drum company made in the states that was pretty cool in the in the especially in the '60s. And these were 1960s Sparkle Dave Clark Five 20 inch bass drum, same bass drum he used with Phoebe Snow and and uh, all these other artists he played with. So I bought that drum kit and I, and I took it over to Gary's studio for this rental. And, uh, and uh, he called me a couple of days later. He said, come pick up your drums. The kid doesn't like them. So I go over to the studio, pick up my drums. Well, in fact, he did like them. He had my bass drum, my hi-hat, my cymbals, and my snare drum. He just didn't like the tom-toms. If you get into the drumming part of it, those, those, those Rogers drums double head they were going, boom beautiful like russ conkle sustain you know it's uh the james taylor uh i've seen fire and rain you yeah know, i was really trying to get that long sustain completely long so that artist was prince that wow. was prince when i went over to the studio uh he had another drummer prince was at the console while another guy was out there just you know keeping time and chopping wood while he tweaked in the tones um but i didn't appreciate who Prince was because they asked, uh, "Do you want a credit on the records? Credit for for a drum rental?" Man, no, no, that's illegal. I don't need that. Uh, but th that's my snare drum and kick drum. On uh, it's the Little Red Rogers kick drum and uh, my Superphonic. Uh, oh. I used to rent my drums a lot right okay. then. Uh, after that, another friend of mine who worked for Wolf and Rissmiller, they were a big promoter on the West Coast. 
Uh, he said, oh, I, I'd like to rent your drums too. And much better, we would rent from SIR, Studio Instrument Rentals, which most people in the business then called Sorry I Rented. <laughs> so, uh, he, 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 so yeah, I did a lot of rentals with those same drums. Uh, James Brown played them. James decided he had two drummers, but one night he wanted another drum kit on stage. So my friend, can you get a drum kit down here right now? James wants to play. Um, I can't think of all the other acts that would have, uh, but, but, but dozens really right. that I would have rented. To. Uh, if I wasn't working, then I, you know, yeah. trying to stay alive. Yeah. Well, <laughs> how did uh, Mr. Mr. Form? Uh, okay. Um, I had a friend, Kim Bullard. Kim Bullard plays uh, keyboards and he's with Elton John now for the last 10 years. Uh, Kim was one of the first guys I met uh, in 74, right after that gig with Juice Newton. <laughs> I met yeah. Kim the next day at another gig we did. So we were friends since a long time. We did a lot of bands together um, in and out of different things. Anyway, Kim calls one day. He says, I've got a friend, George Giz, he's a manager, and he manages a band called Pages. Right. And uh, they're auditioning drummers. You might want to go on this audition i said ah dude i know that record that's vinnie vinnie plays on that record I, i'm not going to audition i can't play that stuff you know it's a waste of time and i'll just you know disappoint them and uh it was kim who said no 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 they don't want that they don't want that they they they've gone down that fusiony jazzy pop thing and they don't want that they want to this is the manager really talking george you want to, right. to steer them towards um as he put it, hall and oats. He said they, they need to get like a hall and oats sound where they have a core band, the drummer and the bass player, guitar player, whatever. So the, the band will really just be Rich and Steve George, who we call Slug. The Rich right. and Slug will pay this with the same manager, George, and their cousin, John Lang, was the lyricist. So those four were all, Pages had two record deals. They first were on Epic and then they were on Capitol. And they were signed both times by Bobby Columbi. And Bobby was the drummer with uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Okay. And then he went on to be an AR man. He signed Jaco Pastorius. He signed Richard Marks, uh, different acts. But he's, he really believed in pages. So he signed them to Epic. He might have produced the first record. Then when he moved to Capitol, he brought them to Capitol. So the third record was on Capitol. And that's when I met him. So what actually happened was... Um, well, the day I auditioned, so I had to audition. I go over at Kim says, you should go meet these guys have a play with them. And funny thing that day is I also got a call same day from Blackie Lawless. Okay. They were called Wasp. Wasp. Yeah. So I had, I had this, oh, which I'm going to go audition for these, these yeah. ages guys. But, uh, and the audition, I was bringing a bass player, my friend James Rolleston that was playing with Fly Cooter then, and uh, he didn't show up. And I had about an hour. I was working a straight gig, and I went down on my lunch break uh, to take this audition. It was down on Ventura Boulevard, and I was working a straight gig in North Hollywood. And uh, so I said, guys, I got to go in an hour. So Richard Page looked around, and he saw a bass hanging on the wall. It was a rehearsal room. It was in the hallway or something. He comes back and playing bass. And so we start to jam and play like that. And a few seconds, minutes later, um, the manager walked in. Uh, a succession of people it was the manager. It was Paul Adkinson, who was, uh, he was originally, well, he was a guitar player in the zombies, but he became an A&R guy also. Okay. And he had signed, I can't think he, Bruce Hornsby was one of his signings. Um, so he came in 
and and Peter McKeon, who was a producer then, had made work, and right. they had the number one record right. They had two or three back-to-back number ones. So all three of these characters walked in while I was auditioning, and they all looked at us like a four-piece. Four-piece. This is great. Yeah. They were expecting to see Rich as a stand-up frontman playing a little keyboards or something. And they, they just, they said four people. And so it was like, done deal. When I left an hour later, it was like, see you tomorrow. Wow. It's like, wow. Yeah. And I asked Richard Page later, I said, you know, that was so fast. I said, how did you guys decide? You didn't, usually you go away and they talk after you leave and say, yeah. oh, well, we like him. We don't want about this or right. whatever. And Rich, Rich said, no, no, no. He said, uh, you know, they'd been audition drummers for about a year. So they bought a Lindrum. And in those days, the Lindrum was about 3,000 bucks. This was like 1982, I think, 1983 about. Um, so they already had a Lindrum. And when I said to Rich, how come you called me that fast? And he, he said, because you were the first guy who could stay in time with the Lindrum and make it to the end of the song. Wow. <laughs> um, and they gave me the Lindrum. They said, after second rehearsal, they said, you can take this. We don't need it now. We have you. Yeah. So I started programming this thing. And a few weeks later, I walk into rehearsal and Richard Page is jumping around playing a, a riff. He says, oh, dude, I love that. Love that. I said, love what? He said, that beat you wrote. I've, I've written a song. We're co-writers. Let's go get you a publishing deal. Huh. Publishing. What are you talking about? Drummer. Publishing yeah. deal. What are you talking about? I'm not a songwriter. And Richard, oh, yeah, man, this is the shit. This is the shit. So he had taken some patterns I programmed here right. and revoiced them to his instrument and uh, and yeah, they got me a Warner Publishing uh, advance. You know, it's like whoa, I got ten thousand bucks. It's like right. whoa, that's great. Then they have to recoup it. Yeah, no, of course. <laughs> yeah. Next- <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, what was like the, the dynamic of the band? Like, was it like just Richard, like the Slug, like kind of like leading it, or you guys all have like an equal say? Well, we all have an equal say. But there's definitely a pecking order, and the, and there's a you know, um, the process. You're asking what the process was with the misters. Yeah, Rich and Slug were very close. They've been together a long time. Right. And uh, generally, what happens is Rich would start something, and then Slug would help him finish it. Slug would let's take it here. Let's go here. We need a bridge. We need a B section. We need an intro. Whatever it is. And the third person not to be forgotten is John Lang, who was Rich's cousin. And John uh, wrote lyrics. So he would quite often take, maybe Rich was just uh, just emoting vibe, and he would transcribe that into actual words. And where this really paid off, so the first record was, was largely already written when I joined the band. Those songs were already done, with the exception of one or two things. Like I mentioned that Rich jumped on that uh, beat for uh, life goes on is the name of that track on the first record second record now we've been touring we went out we opened for adam ant eurythmics i can't think red rocker uh take my breath away berlin yeah. did a lot of opening like we so we were four guys in a car together for a year yeah. and playing sometimes arenas stadiums so we developed our sound more like that and um we started composing material for the next record and we did most of that in a rehearsal room. So very different. Um, we're all together jamming and John Lang is, is bringing up lyric ideas to Rich while we're playing. So um, now the exceptions to that, there's two exceptions on the record, which are the two hits, Broken Wings, 
Rich started that. He had a house in La Cañada then. It was up near Pasadena. And it was over the weekend. We'd go up there five days a week to songwrite, um, sort of semi-acoustic with a blend drum and low volume. And uh, we'd gone home for the week and we came back on a Monday and Rich had bone, bone, the bone, you know, take these. He had, he had a big chunk of broken wings was already done. And uh, uh, another song was not written in the rehearsal room was Kyrie, the other big hit. That we had just, uh, we were in San Francisco. It must've been when we were opening for Adam Ant. Because uh, I remember that gig fondly because we played at the Civic Center in San Francisco where I had seen The Who. Okay. So I wore my Keith Moon Bullseye yeah. shirt uh, for that gig. But uh, Rich had come to me that afternoon and said, hey, we've been working on a demo for Al Jarreau. Uh, see what you think of this. Maybe threw me a cassette or whatever it would have been. And we said, we need a better groove for this or whatever it was. And, uh, and that song was Kyrie. And when I heard it, it was kind of a Latin, something up like that is what I remember. And I thought, wow, I can't play that, but I could play kind of more of a Zeppelin beat. And uh, so that's what I suggested to the guys. What if we, what if we bring the tempo down and, and do uh, like the bass line, these little hits and things. Uh, those were, so that's kind of how we wrote. I mean, as far as, you know, the, the 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 germ of the idea would usually come from Rich and Rich and Slug and John, yeah. and then we would all glob onto it. But there were definitely songs like uh, uh, "Welcome to the Real World," right. "Run to Her," "Is It Love," uh, "Into My Own Hands." About half that record was we were jamming, uh, you know, playing together in a rehearsal room, usually at pretty good volume. Uh, and these things were, you know, you'd play it a couple of times and then say, oh, let's cut that section out. Let's move this section over here, and that kind of thing. Yeah. When you guys were recording, were you aware of like kind of like the religious overtones of like those songs? Um, well, I grew up in the church. I mean, I grew up in the church. I, I right. went to Catholic school. We were afraid that. Right. I grew up with the nuns, eight years yeah. of nuns. Uh, uh, Rich, on the other hand, his his he kind of did grow up in a church. He was, uh, before he went to Phoenix, I think his family was from Alabama or someplace. And there were preachers in his family. So um, I was aware of the religious overtones. Yeah. I mean, I knew what I, I, I used to ring. I was an altar boy. So in, in those days, if you remember, Kyrie Eleison, you ring the bells for the altar boy. So three times you ring the bells. So, yeah, I definitely remember that. I thought, what a weird way to write a song, John and Rich. It's like, what are you, are you really going to keep this lyric? But that was the thing. Uh, I didn't think about it in terms of Broken Wings uh, until as we started to tour and do more and have success, uh, people interviewing us would ask um, why we were hiding our Christianity. Okay. I remember some questions like that. And we'd kind of go, what, what, what do you mean? And they said, well, with all the success of people like Amy Grant and you two that aren't afraid to expose the, their Christian beliefs, why are you guys not you know, promoting it, exposing yourself, exp promoting yourself as a Christian band? And we looked at each other because we're not a Christian band. You know, you know we, 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 we want to write uplifting songs. We have spiritual vibes. We don't want to promote any religion that's i think we could all agree on that that uh, uh 
you know, the, a lot of the problems the world's in, they stem from religion, you know, it's, um, right. you know, good intentions, but it, it's, uh, uh, I don't know if there's one God or a million gods, but yeah. let's just stop arguing about it, you know? That album, like, it, it blew up, you know, it was everywhere, like, um, His Love is my favorite song by you guys. So as session players, we were playing with Christian artists. Uh, you know, it's a guy named Paul Clark that I remember we all played on that record. It was a big, huge Christian hit. Um, but we didn't promote it as us with, it was his record. <laughs> we were just sidemen on the record. Yeah. So, yeah. How, how often were you like, like playing like, you know, sessions like while with Mr. Mr. Oh, quite a bit. Um, I mean, I was already, we were all doing sessions when we met. My, my, my lucky break, if anything, was uh, in the late 70s, uh, Mike Chapman and producer Mike Chapman. They were called Chin and Chap, and they did the Sweet and Blondie and the Knack. And, and um, Mike uh, signed, uh, uh, yeah, he signed her Shandy, this girl Shandy. I was simultaneously also playing with Holly Penfield and Chin and Chap. Uh, uh, Nikki Chin, the Chin part, he signed Holly. So they bring those two artists into their office to sign papers and they realize both have the same drummer. So anyway, it was a problem at first. Mike scolded, brought me in the office and he and Nikki said, oh, you can't be in two bands. This is a disservice to your artist. You've got to make a choice, one or the other. And I said, oh, good friends. I've been working both for two years, making demos, playing gigs, trying to get it. You know, I didn't know they both end up with a record deal that would converge at the same place. Um, but okay, if I have to make a choice, then, then, I'll, then I'll, I'll choose to work with Holly. And, uh, and then a month or so go and they, they're making Shandy's record and they call and say, we, we've never found another drummer. She's pissed off. 
Can you come back? We'll give you permission, is what I think what they said. We'll give you permission to spend one week or two weeks uh, cut Chandy's record, and then you go right back to Holly. So, okay. So, but but Mike started to use me for other things. So, and and Mike, this is Mike Chapman. Um, yeah, we did a lot of demos, demo things for other artists and stuff with Mike DeBars and Holly Knight was a songwriter then. It had a lot of big, big, you know, she wrote Love is a Battlefield with Mike. Um, I was around all those days when all those things were going down. And uh, yeah, that was probably my, my luckiest break was, and, and the thing about Mike was he had, uh, he was so successful that there's a studio in LA, Ocean Way, I knew it as United Western. Now I think it's called cello or something else. But um, my first, some of my first sessions were there back in 74, 75. So this was a few years past. This was around 79 when Mike, he leased one of the rooms for a year. Uh, so they would put in the console that he wanted. So he had the room leased out for a year, but he would go to New York to do Blondie. He'd record at the power stage. So the room was free. Right. So he just threw the key to Holly and Shandy and the bands like me, he said, you guys just write songs, just go in the studio every day, just give me more tunes. So I had months where I could for free record at the best studio in the world. You know, Ocean Way was, was, was number one, man. And, and hear playback and try things. Oh, what if I move the packing in my bass drum, take the pillow out, take the pillow in, you know, tuning and, and arrangements and uh, and things that I learned from Mike uh, Chapman was very much about double tracking things. So if I played something, I had to be able to play it well enough to play it over and over again, so right. he could double, so he could multi-track it. Uh, yeah, I, I forget what your question went, but yeah. I don't know. I would just like say, like when you were like in the Misters, how often would you like provide session work for other artists? Oh yeah, yeah. So definitely, definitely, I was doing other stuff all the time, and so were Rich and Slug. Yeah. And one of those things I did on this side was uh, was Danny and Phil, who became the Rembrandts. Right. Okay. So I played with Danny and Phil since before I knew the Misters. I'd been cutting their demos. They were called Great Buildings, and uh, they might have had a different name. And um, actually, they they'd gotten a disagreement, Danny and Phil. So Phil had left; he'd gone back to Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. So it was first solo record that we did with Peter Coleman. Peter Coleman was Mike Chapman's engineer. Okay. And then around the time of Nick Gilder and Pat Bentar, uh, Mike, well, actually, to be honest, Mike was drinking a lot. And there was a lot of blow in those days. So things would get really weird. And uh, Mike would let Peter finish the records. So that's how I came to Nick Gilder. I played on Nick Gilder's records, stuff like that. And, and uh Peter Coleman produced Danny Wilde's first record. Dan, Danny and Phil were together on that record. Right. I forget quite. Oh, I know how it worked. That Danny had gone to a show and he saw Chris Blackwell at the show. He recognized Chris Blackwell. I'd never know what he looked like. And, uh, and he passed him a cassette. And then a few months later, he gets a call from him. Uh, and now what was interesting was that the, the tape he passed was Danny and Phil but he called Danny. So Danny got the record deal. Oh, wow. Even though these were songs that Danny and Phil, and there was a bass player involved. There's three of them at that point. So it turned into Danny's solo record. That's when Phil said, you know, I'm out of here. Okay. And then maybe solo records for Danny, which were going on simultaneous with uh, 
with Mr. Mr. Touring and yeah. Uh, yeah, other stuff. I think uh, that girl Vanity. That, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I played on, uh, that was the same time as the Mr.'s. Uh, I think Kevin Raleigh had a hit okay. same simultaneously. It was, there was a time when I turned on the radio in LA and found maybe three of my three things I'd worked on yeah. playing on different stages at the same time it was right. like wow this yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 so how hard was um you know to follow up like the you know the huge album with welcome to the real world with go on which i love it's a completely you know different change of pace from welcome to the real world were you guys kind of surprised it didn't do as well because i love that album i think it's fantastic um yeah, yeah, we were surprised. Uh, we thought we had momentum that would carry over. Uh, I certainly recognize that we completely changed the sound of the band. Uh, Paul Devillier, that we did Welcome to the Real World with, uh, got this enormous drum sound. Uh, and with Kevin Killen, who did the, the Go On record, the sounds were much smaller, much more real <laughs> you know uh, but in, to my ear it's a smaller sounding record and um yeah we've been playing those songs live you know we've been touring playing uh watching the world stand and deliver uh half the record we've been playing live and you know twenty thousand people in the arena going nuts um so we're really surprised wow it's over already at radio it went like three weeks and turned around um what you need to know is that we were on RCA records and after, well, by the time before we even did go on, um, the president of RCA records, Jose Menendez, the guy that got shot by his kids. Oh, if you remember this, he was gone. Somebody else had taken over and even the third regime had come in because remember we went to take pictures holding our gold records. You do this for board magazine with like a couple of the big guys from the, from the president of RCA or whatever. We're standing with our gold records and he stepped out of the picture. Thought, you know, the A&R guy stayed with us, but the one guy, I forget his name, he stepped out and I thought, what, what? And he said, this isn't my record. Oh, you know boy. what I mean? So he, he recognized that the record was already hit before he ever got on board yeah. the company. But to me, it would have said, Wow, he's not like he's not our pal. Yeah, he's <laughs> uh, not around you guys. <laughs> uh, Jose Menendez um, actually was kind of our pal. He he would come come out on the road with us. Uh, I live in Austin, Texas now. I vividly remember that he came to our gig, the Misters, when we played with Tina Turner okay. at the Irwin Center here in Austin. That was my first time in Austin. And afterwards, we all went out on 6th Street, the Misters with Jose Menendez and a couple other record executives, and uh, and saw Joe King Carrasco. If you, he's kind of a Cajun. And I remember Jose was, was a hoot, man. He's drinking up a storm and, and dancing on the tables, you know. It's, it, it's like, a, like a buddy with us. Uh, yeah. And then that all changed. In fact, we were completely shocked. We couldn't believe that the kids could have been involved at all. So right. when, I mean, that's a completely different story, but um, yeah, it, it, we only knew it from the outside. So we didn't really, yeah. as much as we thought. Right. Now, you guys got a Grammy nomination for Healing Waters for Best Gospel Performance. Yeah, they were back to the Jesus thing. 
it was just the idea to put the gospel choir on it that I think somehow kicked it over into the gospel category. Uh, but it, it's, you know, Rich and John Lang, they they do write with religious overtones, but they're really, to my mind, they're just spiritual overtones. Yeah. They're, you know, uh, they're looking for uplifting messages and, uh, you know, yeah. and share the love. Right, I know it's like something real. I think that was like the the first single of that album, which I absolutely loved. I mean, that one, like, I guess with the whole album, the theme of the album, kind of disappointed on the charts because that's at least a top five hit.
it only is if it is, you know. Yeah. It, you know, it, it's a hit record, but if it wasn't a hit record, then it, it wasn't a hit record. Yeah. It was a good yeah. song that never got it. Uh, yeah, I, I thought that was a killer, killer tune. And, uh, you know, maybe, I don't know, I don't know, maybe just, right. you know, there's a lot of music in that song. <laughs> when I'm thinking back on, maybe if we just stripped it down and just used the, the chorus hook and not, you know, there's so many sections. Right. I, I don't know. Yeah. I have vivid memories of doing the video. Have you ever seen that video? That's a pretty wild well uh, video. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, they flew us to New York and uh, that was a big budget thing. Like when we did Broken Wing Carrier, we had, I think, maybe $20,000 okay. or less to make those. That's why it's black and white. It was, there's was no budget. Uh, but this record, we had a budget. So, uh, uh, they flew us to New York, and the director is a guy named Zbig Rubchinsky, I think was his name. Really interesting character. And um, and he was shooting the videotape and doing live editing. Um, he he has a style that's all the videos he'd done. He'd won an Academy Award uh, for a short, animated short he'd done where the ball comes in the window. And okay. I'd seen it even before I knew it. I thought, oh, that's that guy. That's pretty cool. Um, anyway, just to, it was a long week. We went there for like a day or two, and it took like 10 days. It just the, the amount of work to make that kind of a video. Uh, yeah, no, it's yeah, it's a fun video. And, and, and like that song was out like for a long time before the album came out. I think I think it was in like uh, what, Young Blood, the movie Young Blood. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't remember the order, but you're absolutely right. We were lucky. We had quite a few songs pop into movies. Uh, that Rob Lowe movie you just mentioned and uh, uh, Black Rain, uh, uh, Michael Douglas movie. Uh, originally, we thought we had the theme song for that. I forget which song we'd written or that Richard written. Uh, uh it was a couple oh that that staying alive uh not staying alive what's called standing at the liver yeah that it was a movie uh with edward james almost and that was already a done movie they'd already finished it uh when they attached our song to it and then they changed the name of the movie to, to that song so it wasn't originally called standing at the liver
So when you guys were working on Pull, did you guys kind of know the writing was on the wall from the record company? Because Yeah, absolutely. Uh, by then, they'd gone through yet another regime change. So BMG, uh, is the way it worked, is RCA was bought by NBC, and NBC was bought by BMG, right. uh, Bertelsen Group, the German company. So they cleaned house. They took a lot of people out. Uh, at different levels, you know, promotion people and and uh, A&R people and stuff and replaced them with with their people. And so we could sense that uh, that the record company wasn't um, wasn't that took to us. You know, the people that, that loved us had moved on. Paul Atkinson was gone. Jose was dead. Uh, other people I can't think of now, but they, they moved. Um, so we knew we didn't have a lot of support at the label and we thought we'll just take our time well we'll we spend two years on the record well then maybe they change again right. <laughs> so, so we thought we can just take our time and we'll see when the dust settles maybe somebody comes on board that likes us and um you have to check me i guess was was grunge already happening or was that a few years later but the music you know this hair metal thing was going yeah. out you know? right yeah and uh, it, it, it became a bit more uh in the direction of grunge if it wasn't grunge yet i forget when nirvana hit maybe 91 or something maybe a year two. 91 uh, yeah i'm not sure but uh so we were, we were in that transition and, and we made a very different record and we went back to paul de Villiers to make the record uh and one of the things with paul when he came on board to agree to make the record with us again he couldn't sign the contract with uh rca because it said you'll be done on this date and paul said no we'll be done when we're done i'm not going to sign any paper that commits us to be done at a date so um so we were we were a thorn in their side and and steve ferris left around that time uh there's more that ties into this i'm forgetting we went down to south america and played a big gig in chile and uh it's it's a long story we we anyway uh that was the beginning of the end with Steve Ferris in the band uh, when all the shit went down in, in South America uh, when we came back pretty much I think we did one more gig with Steve and then, and then that was the relationship was done between Steve and Rich okay. and um, and then we got busy feet to play guitar and rehearsed and actually we auditioned guitar players now that I think of we auditioned for months um, I'm trying to think of some great guitar players we had come in uh, uh, yeah, uh, just a lot, a lot of, a lot of players. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, is it frustrating, like, to have that album, like, on the shelf for, like, almost two decades? Well, it was frustrating at first, because I thought it was really kind of our best work. Right. And for me, as a drummer, I, I definitely thought that. I thought, man, I got great drum tones. I did some things which I didn't really understand, but they were basically what we call beat displacement. Um, these rhythmic illusions like Gavin will talk about and stuff. He, he noted, but I was just playing them by the seat of my pants, just, just doing stuff. Uh, but, but I like that, that they, they had these moments on the record that were sort of sideways, rhythmically sideways. And um, yeah, yeah, I tell you, one guitar player we auditioned was Rusty Anderson. I'd worked with Rusty before, and uh, I forget the band he had then with uh, his car playing drums but um uh 
Anyway, I was so disappointed that Rich and Slug didn't like Rusty. So when I see him play with McCartney, I go, there you go, dude. I right. told you that guy would have been good in our band. Yeah. In fact, at one point, um, I called Adrian Ballou. I didn't know Adrian Ballou, but I'd been telling the guys for months. I said, there's this other guy that was in King Crimson. It's fucking awesome. And uh, at one point, Rich and the manager, George and, and Slug, they say, you like him so much, you go call him. <laughs> so I tracked down uh, his manager's number and I called, and I know this now because I talked to Stan, his manager, you know, when I work with Adrian later, I said, remember I called to say, would, would Adrian want to join the mystery? Said, oh yeah, I remember that call. I said, we had just gotten the call from David Bowie for Adrian to be the band leader for the, for the second time when right. he toured with him, I guess, late 80s. I uh, said, so, so I said, yeah, well, that's why that never happened. Yeah. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So when it did come out, uh, like it was a different sounding record. I mean, was it kind of like a sense of just like relief that it, it was out there for everybody? Or is this like, like, what was your feeling when it first came out? Well, the bootlegs had been out already. Right. Yeah. Uh, no. we, we, we never really finished the record. The mixes, those were, what generally happens from my experience, the best way to mix, you, you go and you do a lot of mixing and then you go away and listen to the mixes for a week and you come back and you know exactly, you have a list. You go, we got to fix this, we got to change that. So then it's very concise. Um, and that's where we were at. We had, we had done our very, very good, almost done mixes. Yeah. And, and then we never got to go back. So and we just let it set there. So when we started talking about putting it out, we thought, well, well do we finish the mixing? We, finish, we decided just fuck it. Let's just, what it is is what it is. So yeah, I was disappointed it sat there. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was wafting around on the internet, you know? So, but, but those weren't necessarily very good copies. You know, right. They might, more hisses or well, i don't forget maybe they were a beat a different alt mix or something i can't remember yeah you guys ever talk about just getting back together for another album not really <laughs> not, we we talk about it for about a second and uh you know uh i think those days are behind us now uh more, more recently there's been a couple offers that have come around and uh, mm. and uh no it's it's not gonna happen Right. Yeah. When was the last time you spoke to Steve? Uh, Steve Ferris. Yeah. Steve George. Uh, Steve uh, Ferris. Well, we, well, we, we emailed um, all together. Uh, you know, I haven't physically actually spoken words, uh, maybe with Rich and George in the last year or six months, sometimes Paul or whatever, but with the full four or five of us, with John and, and Steve and Steve. Um, no, just recently I'm trying to think, oh, because I do this camp, I do a camp, um, in the Catskills up in New York okay. and we do it every August. It's Adrian Ballou, Tony Lover, and myself, and, and we're the hosts of this camp and we have other musicians as well. And about, um, 50 to hundred. Now we're up to about hundred or 120 people that are our campers, um, pay to come here and one of the things we do with them is we jam with them we play with them so each night we'll we, we, we'll figure this out ahead of time so that people can be rehearsed but we'll do a couple songs each so maybe tony's going to pay, pay a, a pink floyd song with some of the campers and then they'll maybe want to do a john lennon song we'll play. 
and Adrian will do a, a Bowie song or one of his songs or something. So for me, sometimes they want to do an XTC song or a Jude Cole song or whatever it is, uh, but the mysteries. So just this last time, we, in the past, we've done uh, Kyrie and probably Broken Wings, but this last year at the camp, we did Black White. Okay. It's the opening track open to the real world. And a pretty good version. So I sent that to Rich and Slug and Ferris. Um, so just a week ago, so about a week ago, we were all texting together. Yeah. So when I last talked to Steve by, by typing was just yeah. last week. Okay. So I guess I came in, Richard, kind of reconciled. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, uh, that's good. Now you mentioned like XTC before about how you got in with like with Paul Fox. Now, what was that experience like? Because I love XTC, and it's a shame that you know they don't really perform live because of Andy. But like, what was that experience like performing with them? Um, what was wonderful? I, I was I was a huge fan of the band. I was really surprised when when uh, Paul called and and told me I had this gig, you know, he says, I got another gig for you or something. Cause I do a lot of little things with Paul, sometimes just an overdub, you know, right. Robin Hitchcock, they did it. Bob Hitchcock and the Egyptians, they'd already had their drummer did the record. And then Paul wanted for an example, if you had a beat that was boom, bop, boom, bop. And he wants boom, bop, but did it doom, bop. I'd be out there going, but did it doom, but did it doom, but did it putting the beats in between or little things like that, that right. Paul might've wanted extra. I had soup. So one day he calls, I've got another session for you. Uh, you got to get ready. There's a lot of songs you got to learn. I say, who's the act? And he goes, oh, XTC. I go, you fucking liar. What are you talking about? It's, how would you do that? And he goes, oh, I'm serious. I'm serious. So, uh, yeah, we had about a month to prepare. They'd sent three cassettes. So there were 30 or 40 or more songs, demos. Um so started preparing that stuff. And then the guys, the XTC guys came over. We rehearsed at Leeds, which is the same place that the Misters rehearsed okay. quite often. The same place where we did a lot of the songwriting for Welcome to the Real World. It was a popular place in North Hollywood. Uh, so we rehearsed in there for two or three weeks and, um, and got on great. I, I, I was a big fan. I'd seen them live a couple of times, XTC. I'd, seen them during one of the Mike Chapman sessions. So way back in the 79-ish, uh, I think they were touring for Black Sea or Drums and Wires. And I had asked Mike Chapman, uh, I said, can, can we get the tracking done on Friday or whatever day it was? Can, can I get my tracks done by the evening? Because I want to go to this show at the Whiskey and I really want to go see these guys. I love this band. And Mike said, we'll take the whole session. I said, I, I don't have any tickets. You know, I don't know the guys. So Mike makes a couple calls. Says, I need a table for 12 and blah, blah, blah. So there's a big group of us that went down to see at the Whiskey. And then I saw him again later at uh, Santa Monica Civic. I think Boingo opened. Okay. Anyway, so I was very familiar with the material. So while we rehearsed those days, you know, if I start to play Nigel, then they jump in and they play Nigel. Or if I start to play Scissor Man or whatever, so, because I knew most of the old tunes, and um, and that that was that was really fun. I think it put them really at ease. Um, so uh, we, we got on along really well, you know. And it was at Oceanway. We rehearsed it, uh, recorded at Oceanway, right back into uh, actually the biggest room at Oceanway. Usually with Mike Chapman, we were in Studio Three. But uh, so yeah, just a super thrill, super great songs, and uh, it was. 
was pretty easy vibe. Uh, I think they booked two weeks to cut the tracks. And they told me, Paul told me going in, he says, I don't know how this is going to work out with these guys. They don't really know you, Pat. You know, uh, they're taking you uh, basically on my, my suggestion. He says, but uh, he wanted to tell me, he says, I want to get Tony Williams to play on the record. He says, so I want to tell you right now, this song, Chalk Hills and Children, you don't get to play on that. You can rehearse it. Right. But when it comes time to track, I'm, I'm going to bring Tony Williams and Mark Isham. And uh, I said, no problem. You know, that's fantastic. I can't wait to hear XTC with Tony Williams. And uh, because we were ahead of schedule, like like I said, they had Ocean Way booked maybe two weeks and maybe we were three weeks. I don't remember really, but we were ahead of schedule. So they said, hey, let's take a go at that song with Pat. And I said, oh great right. so we did chalk hills like a couple three takes and they liked it so they never had tony come down that's great it worked out for you <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah totally but i mean i really appreciate your time today i mean i, I can go on you know uh that's a bad pun but i really didn't mean it that way uh and you know talk about so much more with you but like i said i really appreciate your time today uh best of luck with everything catch you later man all right bye, bye. And a special thanks to Pat for joining me today. Check out his website, patmastaletto.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, you can hit me up on Twitter at the first Noel 19 or like the page Living My Youth on Facebook. You can go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes? Not a problem. Shows on SoundCloud, Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music. Basically, wherever you can find a podcast. A new episode comes out every week. Eh, sometimes. Stay safe, everybody. We'll see you then.